It's Christmas Eve. The halls are decked, the children are nestled, the apparel is gay, and the missile is towed. And that means it's time for a very special OVS Orbit. Welcome to episode 22 of the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This episode is a talk by Dave Lenro of Huawei about intent-based networking. The idea behind intent is to separate the goals of a network from the implementation. While I was listening to Dave's talk, I kept relating the intent idea to the design of the OVN network virtualization system. From my perspective, OVN follows an intent model because it asks its client what its goals are for the network, and then it maps that down to protocols and other details without further supervision. The talk ends with several minutes of questions and answers. I want to encourage you to listen to them because they add a lot to the discussion. I found that they clarified a lot in my mind about the ideas behind intent-based networking, even though I've been to several talks on the topic. On to the talk. Thank you all for coming. David Lenro is Chief Architect for Next Generation Data Center and Distinguished Engineer at Huawei. He is also Chairman of the Open Networking Foundation Northbound Interface Working Group. He's here to tell us about evolving towards software-defined networking. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for coming out. Uh, I'm going to try to sort of sprint through a whole lot of slides and leave some time at the end for, for interactive. So uh, try to err on the side of not interrupting, and, and I'll try to leave some time at the end. I'm going to start out talking about sort of very high-level stuff and kind of progress deeper as we go. And so talk about kind of three keys to enabling innovation. I, I think some of the great new things, SDN and NFD and these various things, aren't necessarily uh, getting deployed and, and utilized at the rate that we thought they'd get taken up at and kind of a thesis about why that might be and uh, then talk about intent-based networking, which I, I think addresses one of kind of the, the three obstacles. Uh, then talk about how intent-based networking might be a good component to include in uh, something like the big control platform, and then talk about some you know hard problems ahead of us in terms of building out these systems at you know massive scale and performance and that kind of thing. So essentially, I, I think the problem today is that it's too hard to try something new. You know, the let's try a new SDN control plane consists of you know forklift upgrade of all the hardware. Uh, you know, probably changing vendors, uh, changing the way the network's operated and debugged and, and a million other things. And if you go and you try all of that and you decide it's just not working, it's virtually impossible to reverse the thing and, and sort of back out of there. You, if you decide you're going to make this wholesale change, it's going to be almost impossible to, to back off of. So I think, you know, telco operators who are very risk averse in general, just don't have the courage to do something as scary as, as what we're asking them to do. And so I think the thing that could change all of that is having the data plane become programmable, changing the way we do integration with workloads and applications um, so that it's not implementation specific, and then disaggregating the solutions vertically. I don't have to tell people at Stanford that data plane programming is coming. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear that uh, lots of people are working on that, you know, products are coming, chips are coming, and, you know, this is a transition that, that's inevitable and, and clearly going to happen. Similarly, there's dis things going on in the, in the disaggregation, and, and people use that word a lot in tech, um, and, but specifically what I mean is the disaggregation of the software components from the hardware components, and, you know, the ability to go out and buy uh, switch, physical switch from one company, running a particular operating system image and changing that image while it's deployed in the field and getting a completely different behavior out of it. You know, thing that was totally impossible in, you know, 2008 when everybody was so concerned about the wire protocol is quickly becoming, you know, the, the thing that's sort of mainstream and, and easier to do. And so the, I think the final missing piece is the integration. Uh, the way we do integration today is some human tells another human what they actually need from the network, and then that human sort of translates it into all kinds of low-level gibberish network stuff, protocols and interfaces and uh, you know, vendor-specific features. And, and so really what we want to do is, is turn that around. I think uh, you know, it just sort of evolved bottom-up. We had a bunch of embedded developers working on these switches and routers, and they built a command line that made sense to them and helped them debug it. And now we have people who are you know, IT professionals 
in other industries who are walking encyclopedias of you know network protocols and Cisco CCIEs and all this kind of thing. And so really the, the intent-based approach is to try to move away from that, uh, allow the people that are using the network to describe what they need from the network in terms that they understand without becoming experts. Some automated tooling and some involvement of a smaller number of experts can then translate what it is you need from the network to the implementation of the network that delivers that. And if you sort of put that all together, you know, I've got a, a white box switch where I can try different operating system loads. I can take a traditional control plane and run the old, the usual protocols with the usual CLI. But when I want to, I can then download a new software load that has a completely new kind of control plane. I can try it and see if I like it. The integration investment I made in order to try it still works with the other solution if I want to back off. And so if you look at a simple transportation algorithm uh, example, if we ordered taxis the way we configure networks, you know, you'd call up a specific taxi company and you'd ask for a particular driver in a particular cab with a particular type of transmission or engine or these kinds of things. And if uh, Bob, the driver you asked for, wasn't working that day, well, uh, I guess I can't get to the airport and you go home and the whole thing collapses. Uh, we don't do that with transportation. We say, I want to go from point A to point B, and maybe there's a cost constraint, and maybe there's a time constraint, and we let the taxi company worry about who the driver is today and which cab is working and all that other stuff. We're basically trying to make that same transition in terms of the network. You don't ask for a protocol, you ask for a logical isolation or some feature that you care about in the communication and let the, the network figure it out. And so I'm going to go deeper into the intent-based networking. Um, this is something that uh, we've worked on in the Northbound Interface Group in the ONF over a period of years. And we recently published a, a technical recommendation describing the operating principles of an intent-based system. Uh, intent was sort of in danger of being another one of these meaningless, overloaded technical words where everybody thinks it means something completely different. And so we really wanted to nail down sort of what we mean when we talk about intent-based networking uh, among the people collaborating on this in the ONF. And, you know, we've got a, a diverse group of people from vendors and operators to all agree that we're going to try to build systems based on this common interface. And so we wanted to, to really clarify many people call many things intent-based networking. When we talk about it in sort of that ONF context and beyond, this is specifically what we mean. And so I've talked a little bit about this, this eliminating the cost of the test drive. If the description of what you need for the network never changes, you can plug in network A and see if you like it, and then you can plug in network B, and you can actually do a head-to-head bake-off comparison type of thing, which the vendors have spent you know, decades and billions of dollars trying to ensure that nobody can possibly do that because it's not necessarily in the interest of an incumbent vendor. Um, so this is really about eliminating the vendor lock-in making the components more fungible. Uh, a side benefit is that you know non-experts can program the network in, in air quotes. They don't need to become you know software developers to program the network. They just need to understand their workloads. You can think of it sort of like the Java virtual machine. It's a, it's a write once, run anywhere, and it's a kind of a simplified world where some complicated things get hidden behind abstractions so that you don't have to deal with them. And it's designed to tie into really dynamic behaviors. You know, 10 years ago, the endpoints sort of stayed where they were and their addresses never changed and things were, were really static. And uh, we, we built a network stack that supported that. Now we have, you know, virtual machines and containers coming and going and addresses changing and all kinds of, you know, high frequency dynamic behaviors in the networks. And uh, we, we needed a way to incorporate that. So the, the simple way to describe this is, is it's a, don't tell me what to do, tell me what you need. It's describing the problem where traditional, you know, the CLI and the commands you type into it, we're describing the solution to the problem. Um, really before the, the network engineer built a model of the kind of network that they wanted. In this, you build a model of the kind of workloads you have and let some piece of software figure out what does the network model need to look like. The old style we describe as prescriptive, and in this health scenario, prescriptive means you go in and you ask for an aspirin. If you ask the Tylenol salesman for an aspirin, uh, he's going to say, I don't have any aspirin, you go home with a headache. If you go to someone and say, could you please make my headache go away, they might offer you one of a hundred different solutions for your headache. And so you know, we want to give the automation and give the controller and all of that intelligence and all the awareness it has about the state 
give it as much latitude as possible to optimize things. When you tell it what to do, you basically take away degrees of freedom in terms of how it uses resources and, and optimizes and things like that. And so, you know, in, in the traditional model, to get a three endpoints on a sort of logically isolated network, you'd start talking about VXLAN and full mesh and layer two and all kinds of stuff. In the intent-based world, you just talk about, you know, exactly that. Here's the endpoints. I need logical isolation. Call me when you're done. Don't bore me with the details. And so again, the hope here is that 99% of the network users don't have to know anything about networking and can get their job done. And a much smaller number of, of experts kind of help in that, that mapping process. So when we first talked about this publicly, and we talked just about sort of the intent side of it, and everybody said, oh, you know, this is stupid. You're talking about magic. All the things that are complicated, you're saying they don't exist. They just go away, and now we can live it. And that, at the end of the day, that is what we're talking about, not because those things don't exist and they magically go away, but just we've partitioned it and said those things still exist. They're just not part of the intent, and they, they go into a different bucket. And unlike sort of a traditional waterfall standards approach where you might spend six years trying to think of every use case in the universe and then come up with some model that handled all of them. This is much more of an agile approach where we said we're going to build a really simple extensible framework that we think can be extended to support any use case and then we're going to build it out one use case at a time. Uh, there's a possibility that somewhere down the road we run into a use case that we can't support with this and we have to go back to the drawing board but, but so far so good. And uh, you know, really what we're doing is creating some simple abstractions that get users of the system away from touching the resources. You're not allowed to know what's in the inventory. You're not allowed to know what the physical topology is. It's none of your business. You're allowed to tell the network what you need and the network controller is going to do all of that resource allocation. So when we started working on this in the, in the ONF, really the problem was that there were you know, a dozen north side pieces of software that had some idea about what this interface needed to look like. And there were, you know, a dozen pieces on the south side uh, that made some assumptions. And the thing we knew we couldn't do was say, everybody throw away everything you have and start over in this collaborative effort and we'll, we'll design something brand new from scratch. What we said is we think we can find a thin interface shim layer that will fit in between the existing pieces and be pretty easy to adapt the things on the north side and the things on the south side so that all the work that went into the, the implementation and the use cases that these things support gets reused. It's just the way that you ask for it ends up looking different. So the, the goal was really to design this common unifying shim, kind of this umbrella interface that could sit between all of the clients of the network and all of the network implementation stuff and allow them to continue to be useful assuming some refactoring and, and some adaptation. And so the ultimate goal is this kind of a narrow waste. You can pick anything from the south side and anything from the north side and stick them together and expect them to work. That leads to you know the, the lack of, of the vendor lock-in and the ability to compare things head-to-head -head and, and try changes, that sort of thing. So the claim here is that really the only thing we're doing that's different is we're separating what is not implementation specific, the pure intent, from the things that are implementation specific. And so there were other things that people called intent-based, and, and someone asked me today about one of them. There was a Huawei project called Nemo, and the question was, well, how does this relate to the Nemo project? And I said, well, essentially, the Nemo project had the intent and what we call the mapping sort of merged together into a single interface that didn't strictly separate these things. And so it should be very easy to refactor that system to use this new interface. But the benefits of the interface you know, become apparent later. Uh, the mapping continues to be sort of uh, hard and, and implementation specific. But you get some really nice properties on the intent side of the thing. And you know, from a high level, uh, one way to think of it is that intent sort of changes in, in human time and in policy time. You know, if Bob needs to be added to the sales group, that's probably not something you're doing you know, three million times a second. It's probably something you do the day that Bob starts working at the company, and it stays that way until Bob leaves the company. You know, the details of what address does Bob have currently and which switches he plugged into and all that kind of stuff, that all lives on the mapping side. That's the stuff that does change frequently. But again, when we come back and look at the intent by itself, you see that it has a whole bunch of really interesting properties that, that make it pretty powerful. And, and so again, just to back up, the, the claim is 
any use case that can be described can be supported by this split into intent and mappings. For a couple of years now, we've sort of put the challenge out there. If, if you think you have a use case that can't be supported by this method, please bring it to us and work with us and, and let's see if you're right. We're, we're sort of open to the possibility that this isn't as generalized as we think it is, but so far so good. And so one of the reasons we've gotten some traction with this in some of the uh, open source SDN controller projects is that really the, the state of the art in multi-service SDN today is that you can run any one service. And the services were developed using this, this model on the left, kind of you know the, the vision of how SDN was going to roll out from about 2009. And you notice back then that the thing that we called the SDN controller was very thin and didn't really do much of anything. I, you know, I, I call it an open flow multiplexer. Open flow went in the top and came out the bottom, and that's sort of what it did. Um, and so the thing that you then called the service of the application was fat and had all kinds of complicated logic built into it. And as it turned out, if you had two apps that did nearly the same thing, they would each have completely independent, unrelated, siloed implementations of, of various functions. They'd all have a flow rule logic module that looked nothing like the one from the other application. And they'd all have network state that was built in a completely different way from the next one. You know, that led to a lot of inefficiency and redundancy. But it also led to this multiple writers problem at the bottom of the stack every one of these entities thinks that it exclusively owns all the resources in the network. And if you try to run two of them at a the time, they scribble all over each other in the forwarding tables and the system rolls over and dies. That's essentially the state of the art in open daylight and, and Onos today. Um, and the problem really comes from this idea that uh, you can have non-synchronized, non-coordinated access to these resources uh, instead of solving the multiple writers problem, if that's even possible, you know, what we're proposing here is essentially to avoid that problem by only having a single writer, which is the intent engine, and nobody else is allowed to write to the flow tables or touch any of those resources. They're only allowed to input in this kind of very high-level abstracted language the things that they need the network to do for them. And so for an example of this, you know, we essentially have two northbound interfaces, the, the intent northbound interface and the mapping northbound interface. And so if you look at a simple service function chaining NFT kind of a, a scenario, the intent side of this really just describes the pattern of the service graph. It doesn't refer to any instance of a virtual function. It doesn't refer to any instance of a server. It re refers to the classes of objects and the manner in which they're connected. So it says if traffic is going from the internet to the sales servers, it needs to go through the firewall. The BNF manager at this point is talking to the mapping interface. It's in charge of dynamically scaling up and down the number of instances of a particular virtual function based on demand and availability, utilization, things like that. And so what it does is every time it creates a new instance of the firewall XYZ object, it adds it to a pool that lives inside the mapping service. And as a result, when the intent engine decides that it's going to, you know, we describe it as rendering, it, it's going to push out the rules needed to fulfill this forwarding graph intent from the internet to the sales servers. Uh, what it does is it sees a couple things in that expression that it understands. It understands this notion of, you know, a sequence of events or filters that exist, but it doesn't understand, you know, what the internet is or what a firewall XYZ is or what the sales servers are. And so all those things, it's going to go to the mapping service. It's going to basically say, OK, I need a, a firewall of type XYZ. I'm going to go to the mapping service and ask, where do those exist? And I'm going to get back a list of firewalls of the right type that satisfy that. And then I'm going to push out a bunch of open flow rules such that one of those firewall instances is included in, in the service chain. The reason this is interesting and, and why we call this intent-based uh, and sort of contrast it with other SFC approaches people have built, is that if for some reason the particular instance of that firewall that we've hooked this subscriber up to fails for some reason, what we can do is very quickly, inside the intent engine, inside the SDN controller, locally, we can go back, pull that list of available firewalls of that type, pick another one, push rules to reroute everything, and then we can send a message up to the application layer saying, by the way, there was a fault in the system and I automatically healed it for you. And now, you know, you don't actually need to know this because I've already fixed everything, but 
you know, as sort of an informational, I just wanted to tell you I moved you from, you know, instance one to instance two. And so the contrasting implementation of this that a lot of people have already built for service function chaining is where, you know, completely prescriptive. A single entity says, connect this instance of the subscriber to this instance of the firewall to this instance of the internet. And if any one of those things crashes, all you do is send an error back up to the application layer. The application layer has to harvest the entire topology. It has to harvest the entire inventory, all the state of the network, pick a different instance of the firewall, figure out how to connect everything, tell the controller to do all that stuff. And by the time all that has happened, uh, you know, the session has certainly failed, uh, might have just died of old age, but, but you know, it's not nearly responsive enough to provide the kind of self-healing that we need in, in NFV systems. So one example use case for this and, and the thing we're working on uh, with the OPNFV and, and with the Etsy NFV and other folks is to try to get this kind of a segmented description of what you need from the network included in the NFV architecture such that the network layer can solve network problems without having to go back up to the application layer. Yeah, something about your example. And isn't it the case that Current practice is all internet traffic going internal to an enterprise goes through firewalls no matter what. So is this example implying that you would depart from that approach? No, and, and in that sense maybe it's a bad example. I think you know that the notion is that is a virtual function and you know some end user has a bunch of checkboxes somewhere that say do you want to uh, have this kind of a filter or an auditing device or a firewall or a logging thing or a something or other and that from the end user perspective I just check a bunch of boxes say yep I care about all those services and I'm done then another system is completely responsible for figuring out what did that mean when the user said he wanted these three server these three services to be applied to his traffic from A to B you know what does that actually mean in, in reality so maybe the firewall for everything from anywhere to anywhere is, is a default rule and isn't interesting, but you know, think of some more sophisticated virtual function. That the point is, in a big dynamic network, there are going to be a lot of instances of particular type of virtual function, and really, you want the compute layer to understand demand and compute load, and when we need to have more compute resources available. But we really want the network layer to understand the network side of this, uh, link utilization and path availability and things like that. It makes no sense to have the cloud orchestrator picking components of a network path any more than it makes for the network controller to be creating you know, virtual machine instances or, or spinning up containers or something. And trying to layer the system in such a way that uh, only the network understands how the network is provisioned and provides that as a service to kind of the cloud controller or the, the compute layer. So turning the other way around, your intent engine would have to detect when my intent is incompatible with somebody else's intent. Right, and, and the, it's a declarative approach. So there, there are kind of two times you can get in trouble. One is when you initially say, here's what I want from you. If that completely contradicts something you've asked for previously, you know, that's just a simple kind of runtime error. I've said, Bob's not allowed to connect to the internet. And then I come back and say, connect Bob to the internet. And, you, know, you gave me two contradictory rules. That's, that's clearly just wrong. The other way that you might see it is you know, essentially the system is self-monitoring and self-healing. The intent controller has way better picture of the network state than any external system ever could. And so by definition, by the time some external monitoring thing has figured out that you're not getting what the controller promised you, by definition, the controller figured that out a long time ago, tried to do everything possible to, to self-heal and remedy that situation, and has gotten to the point where by the time the external system says, you're not getting what you, I'm not getting what you promised me, the system should have already pushed an event out saying, sorry, I can no longer give you what I promised you. It was a valid declarative kind of statement to provide initially, but three quarters of the network just went down and it's not physically possible to fulfill you know, A connected to B. So I think you either get an error when you first say, this is what I need from the network, or it tries to exhaust every possibility to fulfill it. And the only, you know, the only way you get the error back is if it's, it's no longer possible based on everything the controller has visibility to, to, to fix the problem. So architecturally, it looks a little bit like this. Uh, there's a client talking to the intent <coughs> interface. There's a client talking to the mapping interface. They might or might not be the same client. And then it essentially scales out. So you can see there's sort of some local SDN domain infrastructure to the south. 
but then that synchronizing left and right is intended to suggest that within one of these domains, a lot of this is autonomous and not shared between domains, and, and that's a big part of how we expect this to, to scale out, and I'll talk about that a little more later. And so the idea of the mapping registry is it's this sort of real-time database that's maintained by all the external sources of truth in your IT infrastructure. So, you know, one example would be the, the Skype for Business call controller. Uh, whenever it sets up an encrypted audio or video session, it's going to tell the mapping engine about it so that we can create intent that describes how we want those sessions to behave. If we had a vCenter or an OpenStack controller, again, it's you know running the compute side, it's running the storage side, but we essentially, whenever it creates network interfaces or uh, attaches something to a network interface or changes somebody's IP address, you know, vMotion, these kinds of things, we need it to update the mapping <coughs> repository. So the intent engine kind of sits in a perpetual loop waiting for something to change. If the intent changed, it needs to recompute what's going on. If the mapping's changed, it needs to recompute it. Or if something in the state of the network changed, it, it needs to recompute it. And figuring out what to recompute and re-render and how to minimize that, you know, turns out to be a, an interesting hard problem that I'll, I'll talk about a little later. And in addition to these automated systems that are, are sort of pushing real-time updates into the mapping repository, there's also the idea of the, the human expert and the network engineer. Uh, you might have a scenario where the workloads have asked for logical isolation. Uh, it turns out that you're on a system that has you know, MPLS and VXLANs and VLANs and IP and you know, there's, there's 10 different ways of logically isolating something. That might be the case where some human expert would come in and say, I know based on what I know about our implementation that uh, we should fulfill logical isolation using VXLANs as a first choice and you know, MPLS as a second choice or, or something. So the, the experts that actually understand the protocols and the, the deep details don't go away. Uh, they just become used uh, much less frequently and, and for kind of higher value operations. So at the actual interface layer, this is an incredibly simple concept. You know, there's a thing called an object, which is meant to represent something that can attach to the network and generate packets. and. <coughs> Typically, you're going to identify objects by IP addresses or things like that, but the object is, is abstracted enough and extensible enough that it can kind of represent anything. And again, we're going to extend object types as we go based on the use cases and, and what we need to create them. There's an object group which just allows us to, to kind of recognize that the 30 people in the sales department all get the same kind of filtering and auditing. And, and so rather than having 30 separate rules that describe each of those, it turns out to be much more efficient to have a single rule that describes what the group needs and to drop new members into the group and have them kind of inherit all the attributes of the group. And so then the final component is this modifier, which basically describes relationships between the groups. What's allowed, what isn't allowed, who's allowed to talk to who, what protocols they can talk, that, that sort of thing. And so all of these three types of objects get created and manipulated using CRUD operations uh, through a REST conf interface. At least initially, there's been some talk about you know, maybe a more transactional interface to, to cloud orchestrators and things like that. Um, and you know, so it, it comes from the Yang model. And essentially, on the intent side, you can build a graph showing the relationships between these various groups. And then you can apply all kinds of graph theory to filling out how to fulfill and optimize and, and do other things with this. There's some papers from HP labs uh, that have been published talking about sort of applying graph theory to policy of this nature. So finally getting to the, the big control project, you know, we see that in order to build sort of global scale, real time, <coughs> low latency collaboration, one of the things we're going to have to do is control enormous, you know, global scale networks uh, to, to a large degree. And so there's an opportunity to say what's going to be the interface between all of kind of the upper layers of the big control platform and the actual network infrastructure and other infrastructure. And I think I will argue that uh, some of the nice properties of, of the intent description make it a, a good candidate for that and something that we'd like to, to see adopted. I think where there's a big control platform module called the declarative planning stage, that's probably a pretty good hint that the intent interface might, might fit into that part of the, the system architecture. Through the ONF, we've had pretty good success getting different people from different areas to agree that we're going to try to build this common interface. 
And so, you know, we're already working with the ONF of Open Daylight and ONOS and with the MEF and with OPNFE and, you know, all these other groups are saying in one form or another, we, we get the intent-based thing, we, we see the value of it, we're trying to figure out how to kind of evolve there. Obviously, the, the hard part is, is migrating away from the existing model and all the investment people have in, in using that model. But I now have a new role in Huawei in the, the Central Research Institute. Uh, one of the big initiatives we're starting up is to try to design a collaboration with the Platform Lab and, and a way to collaborate on some research related to the, the big control platform. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in, in the rest of this talk is talk about some of the kind of design and research problems on the horizon um, that need to get solved and hope that maybe somebody sitting in this room says, hey, that's a pretty cool problem. I, I wouldn't mind working on that and, and we could, could follow up. So I think, you know, the my oversimplified description of the networking journey is first we decided, you know, in the, the IP internet era that everything had to be completely distributed and anything remotely centralized was bad and had to be avoided. Then we went OpenFlow and SDN and kind of jumped all the way to the other end of the spectrum and said everything should be logically centralized and anything that's distributed or not autonomous is bad. And clearly what we've learned along the way is that neither of those extremes is right and that sort of a healthy combination of the two and the right tool for the right job is, is really the answer. And so I, I think you know, one of the things we have to do here is just figure out how much state can be isolated to a autonomous intent domain and never shared with anybody and we can avoid all the problems of sharing and synchronization and timing. Um, and then the other pieces for the things that do have to be shared, how can we sort of optimize those and make sure that you know there is as low volume and as efficiently distributed as possible. There's also the notion of sort of this transit path advertisement and, and scheduling. And, and so the notion that you have all these little intent domains, the actual intent description, it's, it's positionally independent, it's geographically independent. There's no reason why the description that Bob is allowed to connect to the internet belongs in any one of these domains. The idea is, you know, it doesn't change very often and it's kind of global, let's just push it out everywhere. Then within the intent domain, once you start fulfilling that, you end up creating a huge amount of, of you know, state that changes at a really high rate. And so the first thought is let's contain all that state inside the domains and, and have kind of a shared nothing model. But then as soon as you have to do any kind of end-to-end -end across multiple of these domains, you run into the problem that you need some higher level controller that actually sees the end-to-end, -end, doesn't see inside all of the state minutiae that's in every one of these domains, but at least sees the ingress and the egress interfaces and their capabilities. And so, you know, this is a problem that hasn't been solved, but if you had sort of hundreds of fabric cells all built up into one giant uh, intent system, how exactly would you share and advertise information about the, the interconnections and the transit domains in such a way that you could sew together end to end? I think, you know, one thought that jumps to mind is, well, this is kind of the BGP problem and, you know, we've already solved this, why don't we just use BGP? And I think the answer is, is A, it's sort of BGP with constraint routing of a type that I'm not sure has ever been implemented or existed. But also, I, I constantly hear uh, Igor Gashinsky from Yahoo, who's been telling us for years, everything that's on my network is there because I wanted it there, and it's in my inventory database. Whatever you do in the world, do not do some stupid, slow discovery thing that's going to result in 15-minute convergence time. If you want to know what's in my network, please read my database. And, and so I think you know, that, that's sort of the spirit in which we would like to figure out a way to advertise this kind of external connectivity but hopefully do it in a way that kind of has that instant recovery from a known state rather than going back into a, the autonomous bumbling around, stumbling into things and figuring out what they are process that leads to excessive convergence time. You know, at Huawei, a lot of our customers are telco customers, and so uh, we're very interested in sort of this mobile edge computing set of problems. You know, there's clearly a problem which says, if I have some kind of compute that needs to go up to a giant regional data center like Amazon, uh, that's going to be okay as long as I can get very low latency inside of that data center once I get to it. But there's another whole set of problems where the, the wire time just to get to that regional data center and back has already killed you and, and it's not responsive enough. And so for those, we're envisioning, you know, really pushing the data center 
all the way to the edge, whether that's on a light pole or in a cabinet, remote cabinet out at the end of your street or on top of a building or in a central office or whatever. But the idea is, how would you do a mobility handoff if this service is running and a car is traveling at high speed and the, the server is essentially physically proximal because it's on the, the building next to your car? What do you do when you go out of range of that and come into range of the next one? And one set of problems is how do you get instances of the compute uh, logic pushed out to the right places? But then the other piece, you know, that the, the logic can kind of sit there waiting for you to come into range, but then the actual transfer of the state of your connection from one of those to another is, anyway, there's, there's a whole set of kind of interesting problems in there, and how do you optimize around that, and uh, how do you decide when the workload that's physically proximal is going to be sufficient, or, you know, when you want to save money by going back to a big regional data center, there, there's a whole bunch of kind of placement and scheduling optimization problems in there that, that look interesting. I think initially we can just say, well, the state that has to get shared will share with Cassandra or some you know big, fast, NoSQL database kind of thing. And to, to go from sort of small to medium and maybe even to pretty big, that's probably good enough. But I think, you know again, when you really say we're going to do this at sort of massive global scale, I think there's probably a, you know, a very customized set of tools that you need to build to kind of propagate and exchange that state and, and keep it synced. And then the minimal update to the global rendering problem. You know, if, if you change uh, one of your 10,000 users and it causes the system to push out new rules for 100% of the, the you know, flow tables, you're going to thrash all of the existing stuff in a way that's, that's completely unacceptable. We built a system like this at a startup called Plexi several years ago, and that was sort of the first thing we, we ran into, was any time they made any sort of change to the rules database, the whole system thrashed like crazy, and, and you know, operators were very quick to tell us that's totally unacceptable. If I change you know, one high-level abstracted rule for one end user, I need you to change one open flow rule in one switch, not you know, thrash the entire network. And so finally, just to, to kind of wrap up, I think when you, when you split out the implementation specific from the non-specific, you get all these great properties. The intent data is completely portable. It's hugely scalable. It's composable. It's understandable. It's securable. All goodness. Again, the mapping, not so much. But at least one set of data and the thing that we think most people are going to have to interact with you know, really becomes much more manageable. And so ultimately, you know, intent is intended to level the playing field, make vendors compete on price performance in kind of head-to-head -head competition, hopefully get kind of a virtuous cycle going where the operators are asking for it, which causes, you know, even the vendors who want to hang on to their vendor lock to get with the program and participate. And that's it, you know, really the, the next question or the next discussion I'd like to have is how can we work with the platform lab and the the big control project and solve some of these problems together. Thank you. Questions, comments? Maybe this question comes from, I'm not, uh, I'm not familiar with the concept of intent, but I heard of it that the, from the several years ago, we talked about the policy-based networking or policy-based something. But what is the fundamental differences between the intent-based networking and policy-based networking? So what I say is uh, all intent-based networking is policy networking, but not all policy networking is intent-based. Right? So if it doesn't have this specific split between the implementation-specific and the implementation-independent, then it's, it's not intent. And there's certainly a million types of policy that aren't factored in that way and, and don't recognize sort of that, that division. And I, I get policy to me is clearly a word that has become totally meaningless because it's so overloaded and, you know, we, we very early, that's why we started calling this intent because you'd say policy networking to someone and they'd be like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I read that paper five years ago and then they'd, they'd stop listening. So I think just giving it a different name enabled us to kind of get people to listen and, and realize that uh, there's something a little different about this type of policy-based networking. So to interpret intent to the lower level the command or some operations, we need some translation to the term or object used in specifying the intent to yes. lower levels. In this case, we can use some same. We can there is multiple word can refer some a word, and but the same word can. For example, to intent wanted to set up them some firewall between them, some host or network, but we have a lot of implementation technologies for realization of 
realize fire. In this case, how we can choose the many alternatives or Right, so, so that's what I was trying to apply with kind of the firewall XYZ, is it's not any generic firewall, but it's a specific firewall with a specific configuration and a specific set of rules. And, you know, it's, it's kind of defined as a virtual function. So, you know, as a service provider, I might have 10 different commercial firewalls that I resell and five different configurations of each one that I make available to people. But even within that, I might have hundreds of instances of each of those, and so all of the same mechanics come into play. When you say you want this type of firewall with this set of configurations, that still doesn't tell me which instance in the network you want. There still could be a hundred of them, and one of them's on the other side of the planet, and one of them's five feet away, and one of them's across a link that's completely saturated, and one of them's across a link that's not being used, and, and so that's where the, uh, it, it's not that the, the name of the thing, firewall XYZ, describes a specific type of entity. It's really just a unique string that's bound to some virtual appliance in the back end. And so uh, the things that describe the virtual functions you care about need to be unique. So you can tell, again, it's, it's not an instance of a function, it's a class of function. As long as you have a bunch of unique classes of functions that you're using you know, within the network, this method applies, and, and the way they would decide specifically what you mean when you say firewall, that, that's in the expert domain. Someone from the operator decides these are the 12 configurations we're going to sell, and here's what we're going to call them, and you know that all lives above the interface. At the interface level, again, it's just here's a bunch of groups of things, here's how they're connected to each other, and here's a bunch of modifiers that describe what is or isn't allowed to, to transact between them. I think part of where you were going was, well, actually, the interface maybe isn't so hard. It's the building the intent engine, the thing that does the rendering and the trans. That's the hard part. And you know what I would say is, yep, absolutely. This is supposed to be really simple, and this is not how to build the intent engine. This is how to build an interface that could sit above just about any intent engine implementation. And I think where implementers are going to differentiate themselves is how they figure out how to do that translation. So I envision a world where there is some open source intent engines and people using them for various purposes, and there are some closed source versions uh, that people build because they think they've got a better algorithm or uh, some intellectual property to, to bring to the equation. And the goal here is just to be able to let the market decide, throw all those components out, make them completely fungible, and let people mix and match in the ways that work for them, and, and that will sort of drive the who's successfully commercial and which solutions you know, actually get deployed from open source and which ones you still have to go buy from a vendor. Again, if, if we can just sort of make it easier to compete in this space and, and bring down the vendor lock, I think it's, you know, it's a net win for everybody. The, the pie gets bigger, there's more competition, there's more innovation, there's, there's more solutions. So I've ended up in this weird position of, of having to uh, make my living getting paid by a vendor, but essentially trying to build a, a vendor agnostic cross-industry collaboration. So far, so good, but we're really at the point where we need to do a combination of getting more use cases to work in the real world, you know, using Open Daylight and Onos, and solving some of these hard problems out on the horizon as, as we try to scale this out massively in particular. How are we going to go from this generalization that it scales out because the intent is shardable to the actual reality of here's what we share and what we don't share and what kind of messages get exchanged and how big we can scale it. Do, do you imagine that the, the application program, you know, Skype or YouTube or Spark, that, that they will program against this interface? Yeah. I see. So who, let's say you're Skype and you want to get, you know, provisioned bandwidth with a certain amount of jitter. Will you or the ONF define a language for asking for a provisioned bandwidth and you'll define what jitter means and how to ask for that? Will that be part of a specified protocol? Yep. Uh, I see. So how about for, you know, tunneling, if you want an SSH tunnel or an IPsec tunnel, will there be a language for specifying the particularities of the tunneling point? Well, yeah, so, the, so in intent world, there are no tunnels. Tunnels are just implementation, right? But in the intent world, there's something you are using a tunnel because you want it. Logical isolation, privacy, you know, something like that. And what so, if I need to connect to a particular kind of VPN? So the mapping service would be the place where you could 
again, the object would just be called the VPN, and the intent would say the VPN is allowed to connect to this or that. When you say, what the heck is the VPN, that's where you'd go to the mapping service, and some human would have to have entered enough data to identify that traffic. It's the thing that's hanging off port three of switch number 200, or it's the thing that has this IP address, or it's the building next to Bob's house, or however it is that you define that type of object and classify that type of object. That's what the mapping service would, would give you back when you ask the question of you know, what is this thing and how do I recognize it? I see. What if you want a particular kind of uh, you know active queue management? Like I want packets to be marked at this place and dropped at this place based on the number of packets or bytes. So again, that that's implementation, not intent. Your intent, you, you have to ask the question: Why do you want that marking discipline, or why do you want that queuing? Well, it might be the one my application was programmed to work best over. You know, if you're, if you're running timely or you're running a different congestion control scheme, you expect certain marking or dropping behavior in the network. Yeah. How do you express that desire? So in the mapping engine, you would express that this interface here has these particular physical and protocol properties. So and who, who defines the language to express these properties? Again, it's, it's a simple framework that gets extended on a per-use case basis. So for this use case where you're talking to something that uses a particular type of marking and <coughs> things, you would then have to create some way of expressing it, and then you, I mean, this, this is the way you extend the system. Step one is you extend the language to understand some new keyword or modifier, and step two is you change the rendering engine to understand that when it sees that modifier, here's what I have to actually do to make it. No, I understand, but how through. do you make it vendor independent? Like, if I'm writing Skype and I want to be able to ask for something from the network and it needs to work on, you know, some company's network in Colorado and a different company's network in, in Xinhua, you know, how, how, do, how do I, how do I, how do I know? Yeah. Something right. So the Skype call controller uh, essentially creates some intent groups and updates the mapping server in real time. And it will do that for any platform that is running the ONF common northbound interface. And so if the companies that you mentioned happen to implement that interface, then it will work with any on all of them. If the companies don't happen to interface, implement that, then uh, you can't get there from here. Okay, so you're going to define a whole ontology about things about how we measure jitter and what it means to have efficient bandwidth and what it means to have certain queuing behavior and this, this is all, there's going to be a big spec about all the things you can ask for from the network? Right. All of that exists today kind of scattered. What we're going to do is, is sort of curate it, right? So the jitter, uh, the MEF and the ONF both have UML models for how you describe jitter and how you describe bandwidth and how you describe uh, latency and all those kinds of things. We don't have to invent anything there. We just have to, when we get to a use case that cares about jitter, we have to say, okay, here's the representation. Again, not how you deliver the jitter, how you, how you ask for it. So the decision is, well, is it in uh, you know, milliseconds or microseconds? It's not profound stuff at the end of the day. How you ask for it turns out to be... I mean, isn't this something OpenFlow is like, Struggled mightily to do for the last maybe almost ten years, eight years. I mean, OpenFlow—they they nail programmable forwarding tables, but there's a whole bunch of extensions people have asked for, and they haven't really been successful with any of them. I I, I don't think it's a it's a symmetrical comparison, right? So I mean, the OpenFlow is a wire protocol. Um, it it says that the most important thing is the how one system asks another system for this in a pre-agreed upon kind of kind of manner. This isn't a completely different... This is not a wire protocol. No, a million miles above it. This is the reason that nobody should ever care about a wire protocol again, right? You know, there's three people in the world who should understand OpenFlow and it's the people who write the compiler or the driver for it. You know, I, I kind of I kind of moved into web applications and you know, I work in a startup area and I actually talk with lots of people who run web applications. and. Curiously, they're all running on clouds now, and I was trying to figure out what their model of a network is. And since they don't really control the placement of their things, in fact, they use these services that automatically start and stop VMs and stuff like that, they have just like a really basic description of what sort of things can talk to each other and stuff like that. I have no idea what's happening underneath the covers. I was wondering, where does this intent network fit in that kind of model if I just kind of have no idea what's going on down there? Well, I think the problem is all of the cloud providers have kind of gotten stuck at the wrong level of abstraction with, with the rest of the industry, right? So the, to the extent that you can control anything about networking in the cloud, it's about protocols, it's about interfaces, it's about kind of the, the old low-level implementation objects that we're trying to get away from. I think any or all of the big cloud providers should be using this kind of an intent-based system where, again, they get to control their secret implementation backend and they don't have to share their special sauce with anybody. 
but they have a standardized way of, of saying if you want to ask for this particular behavior, either I support it and here's the box you check to get it, or I don't support that, you'll have to go buy it from somebody else. Is that really right? I kind of think now, you know, at one time when I wrote code, I used to think about what the CPU pipeline would do when it, the compiler generated some instructions. And to, uh, now I'm all like, coding in JavaScript and stuff like that. I'm so many miles Man. above it. <laughs> I'm so many miles above it that I don't know what's happening. I don't care. And the similar thing with these cloud things, I just hope they do something good, you know, in terms of the latency and bandwidth between the things. And maybe I'll choose a different cloud provider based on that metric. But you know, the last thing I want to do is have to cite and think about links and intents on them. You know, maybe the right thing is to but, hide I, all that. So I think the way people do it today is, you know, in Amazon, I spin up 500 instances, I get some random connectivity, everybody pings each other like crazy, and I figure out, is it going to work or not? Uh, nope, it's not going to work. I tear down all 500, I bring up another 500, and I iterate until I accidentally get a topology that works. I think this could be the replacement for that. You say, I need a topology where everyone can talk to each other in under three milliseconds, call me when you're done, and you know, problem solved. But literally, that's you know, most people doing big things with lots of workloads on Amazon are playing these kinds of games to try to trick the system into giving them net network parameters that they're not allowed to ask for using the official interface. And I, I think this is the solution is, let's give them an interface where you're allowed to ask for what you want. You're still not allowed to ask for implementation, but you're allowed to ask for features or behaviors. Maybe or... they chose the wrong cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Are there other clouds that, that have better ability to control network behaviors? Wait, wow. I think some of them might have better underlying infrastructure. But that still doesn't solve the question of, of whether there's a reasonable way for someone to ask for it to behave correctly. I think that's what's missing. And again, if everybody has their own way of doing it, we've kind of gone in a giant circle. If, if we don't get some workload portability out of, out of this through abstraction, I think we've, I mean, that's what network's been stuck with. I mean, we virtualized the whole thing, but we didn't abstract anything. You know, this is about abstracting it. I was just hoping that the network people could just, I have a mental model of a network. It's a crossbar switch that anybody can talk to anybody. And, um, you know, if you can just deliver that, I don't, you know, I don't yeah. want to have to specify. And within a single data center, that's kind of how we do it, right? Every time we have some fancy QoS scheme, somebody says, you know, give Moore's Law a couple months and we won't need it anymore, and we just over-provision the heck out of things. But I, clearly in telco, you know, edge networks with expensive backhaul and all that kind of stuff, you, you can't just brute force it and over-provision it. We're going to need some way to at least ask the system to finesse it, whether the system can deliver those behaviors or not. At least then it becomes the hard part, right? The hard problem is how do we deliver these behaviors people want instead of how do we make business people into network engineers so that they can get this stupid network to connect Bob to the internet. Okay, but the, the language you're talking about is going to be, have to be quite rich. You know, if I was at Amazon yesterday. You know, if, you, if you say, ask me for this, they're going to say, okay, well, here's our price. Or you know, maybe you have a reservation, or we have a spot market. I mean, if that's all part of this larger intent language, it gets quite But mostly those are hacks that they had to develop because they couldn't give you what they wanted and what you want. So they say, well, you can buy a bigger instance, or you can... Uh... I don't know. I, I think if you could just ask for a millisecond RTT between everything, everyone would. But it's going to be millisecond RTT in exchange for a price. I mean, there are finite resources in these networks, and they cost money. Right. So, but again, today, there is no way to ask for that latency from any of those networks. It's a giant best effort mess, as far as I can tell. And, and again, people are doing these heuristic hacks to try to trick the system into giving them what they want. I, I hear you, but I, I don't know how to specify the kinds of abstractions you're talking about without an unwieldy standardization effort. I think getting all the vendors to agree on how you quote price for latency trade-offs is uh, I mean, that's a major standardization project. Yes, you did thought. I, I, I haven't thought at all about the how do you price for it. I've just thought about how do you ask for it. But you're right, there's a whole other dimension there that makes it even harder. I'm not, I'm not sure that how you ask for it is that bad. I mean, I mean, is that difficult a problem? Like, you know, I'd really just like to have a box on EC2 that I could say, you know, this is the bandwidth I want, this is the latency I want to pull down buttons or something. I mean, yeah, no, clearly the UI is, is <laughs> trivial, and <laughs> it's exactly what you said. Yeah, but having really, a, when that dialog <laughs> box goes away and has to push a couple objects across the end of the API, it doesn't seem like the problem is, is in the user interface specification. The problem is sort of in convincing the businesses to deliver what I want. Well, especially if you want to do it in a vendor-neutral API. Well, yeah, because let's back up, because I think the problem is exactly in the interface. The way you ask Cisco for the behaviors you want looks nothing like the way you ask Huawei for it. It looks nothing like the way you ask you know, Alcatel for it. 
And that's the, the vendor lock right there. If you want to port your bazillion lines of Cisco IOS command line to some other thing, you've got to spend a million dollars to do it, and then you better hope it works when, when you're done. You know, what we're trying to do is solve that problem and say, if you've created a description of what you want from the network once, you never have to change it again. Why should it be different based on a vendor or different because I'm using MPLS instead of Lambdas? I wasn't really talking Cisco. I was talking like, you know, well, just tell Amazon I want to network with this bandwidth and latency. Tell Google Cloud I want to network with this bandwidth and latency. And tell Azure I want to network with this bandwidth and latency. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't seem like rocket science, right? I mean, even if they have different REST calls, like, I could probably figure out how to do that, right? Right. Well, so there are two issues. I think, A, you can't ask for any of those features today for any of them, period. The second one is if they were to implement that, they'd all do it with a unique API and there would still be a ton of extra work for developers that, that's pretty hard to justify. I think Keith's question is, is really important, at least to me. Very rarely are your demands absolute, right? Like, if you give people absolute requirements, they're just going to either know what the requirement should be or they're going to pick the minimum or maximum, whatever sounds best, right? Minimum latency, maximum throughput, all the time. Right. And if there's no cost, yeah, I'll take the best of everything. Thank you very much. Right. And, and so the, the point here is that when you're like designing these systems, you typically will say, like, I'm only going to run these jobs when the cost of EC2 is low, right? And it doesn't make sense for me to run this job unless I can get these parameters, right? So it's like, I'll make a, a yes or no decision based on what the cost is now for what I need. And I'll shop between providers based on what cost is now. And so if there's no way for me to figure out what the cost is to implement the thing that you want, either I'm willing to pay any price or I have a budget. And I want to optimize for one of those things, either getting what I need done to meet my, like if I'm Spotify or Netflix, right? And a customer's paying me $10 to watch a movie, I'm willing to spend up to $9.99 to deliver that movie to them, licensing, yeah. bandwidth, yeah. et cetera, and give them the best experience they can. Obviously, I want to optimize that, but I'm willing to spend up to $10, and I want to optimize some parameters between there. As you go like, you know, above that, it doesn't make sense for me to deliver it anymore, and I'm going to have to compromise on something. Right. Well, we sort of worked our way all the way to the kind of batch mode cloud set of use cases, which probably are the least applicable and the least interesting, but you know, if I'm sending, I'm approaching your vehicle from around the corner at 300 miles an hour and I need to somehow notify you that I'm coming, I don't have the option of running it later tonight when the cost has come down or uh, pushing it you know, somewhere else for, for cost or any of those. It, it's really, what if the constraints were sort of bare minimum to function constraints rather than you know, what would you like? It, it's not the, you know, do you want ice cream or chocolate cake? It's the, where is the line where your car is going to crash into mine and we're all going to die in a fireball and I'll keep you on the right side of that line? And, and so for, I think for those use cases, it is useful and important to describe what the network's going to have to deliver if the application's going to succeed in a lot of these cases, it's a real-time thing, and there is no run it cheaper or run it later or push it onto somebody else's cloud. But you know, for a, a telco provider of mobile edge computing as a service, you're going to tell the network, here's what I need, and you're going to pump stuff into the network. And if you don't get it, bad things are going to happen. And, and so we're really trying to allow those kinds of services to tell the network what they need so that we don't have to just over-provision everything. You know, it, it's not cost-effective to over-provision everything. But you're right, in a kind of uh, enterprise uh, developer environment, if you ask somebody, do you want you know, bronze, silver, or gold, and they all cost the same, everybody asks for gold, and uh, you haven't actually accomplished anything. So I think there's, there's a domain where pricing is the only way to keep people honest, and you have to kind of bring that dimension into it. But I think there's also just these kind of basic, if this has to travel more than so many kilometers over a fiber, it's going to take too long, and it's just not going to work. And if the network controller can recognize that's a vehicle that needs to avoid another vehicle in the next couple of microseconds, and that's a voice recognition command that could come back in you know two and a half seconds and, and the world would be fine. Today, those workloads look identical and the network requirements look identical from the controller perspective. So it's, it's having the ability to understand that not everything is created equal. It's not about fairness. It's not about load balancing. It's not about giving everyone the same probability of failure. It's really about understanding that workloads are unique and some of them have to run locally and at ultra low latency and others don't. And that if you understand that and you can do scheduling and load placement based on that, you get much higher utilization before the system's saturated. And again, if you let people prescriptively say, I want this resource connected to this one using this thing over here, you know, that 
shared pool optimization starts to collapse and, and you fragment the thing really, really quickly. So we're kind of officially out of time. I don't know. All right, well, let's thank our speaker. I have a meeting with Guru that I think we'll probably need to disappear into pretty quickly, but... Um, okay, well then if you want to talk to David, you got to mob him now because he's got to disappear. <laughs> or, or chase me by email or otherwise. I'll, I'll provide contact info and send you this deck to upload, and if people want to follow up directly, uh, please do. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.